We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 for a few moments and then Mark chapter 13 for um, probably the rest of the time. I thought today that we would take a plane ride. I remember uh, years ago, um, there was one of the students in our youth group, Kevin Weeks. How many of you remember Kevin Weeks? Yeah, if you don't remember Kevin Weeks, he's the guy that used to come to youth group in January when it was close to zero, in his shorts, with flip-flops. So when he told me he'd take me on a plane ride out of Hornell around the area, I wasn't even sure if I wanted to. And, but I remember in that little, I don't know what it was, Cessna or whatever, but just going up there, that was the first small plane, plane ride that I had had. At first, it's a little unnerving, you know, and then, but, you know, then you get to see, oh, yeah, that's where, you know, that's where the dealership is, and that's where he took me all around. Well, you know, when it comes to planes, there are actually different levels, obviously. You have the commercial jets. They say they go up to 50,000 feet. The Lear jets go from 5,000 to 20,000, and the little Cessnas go from 2,000 to 5,000. Different levels. What I thought we would do today is actually get in the jet. First of all, commercial jet. See a big picture from way up high. Then we're going to hop in a Lear jet and go a little bit closer to the earth. Actually, what we're looking at is not the earth, but the history, the timeline of history that God has given us. And then we're going to hop in a little Cessna and start looking at pieces. Because with a Cessna, you can go right down low, you know. And uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to end with this week and next week, looking at the specific little pieces of what Christ told His disciples that was going to happen from the time of His uh, leaving this earth all the way to the time of the tribulation. Okay, so we're going to look at pieces. So we're going to start with the the big picture, being in the commercial jet, as it were. It's the first Roman numeral that you have, Roman numeral 2. It's the world's future. And again, that's what Daniel gave us in uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Now again, Daniel was praying, he was confessing his sin and the sins of the nation of Israel. Again, Israel is at this point in captivity. They've been there for a number of years. They, they will end by having a total of 70 years of captivity. They're right at the end of the captivity. Gabriel the angel is sent from God to inform him of the, of the future of Israel and of Jerusalem. Primarily it's Israel and Jerusalem, but encompassing that is the whole world. And so, we find that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined. Now again, when you see 70... It means 70 periods of time. The word weeks literally just means sevens. Okay? So 70 times seven. Now again, Daniel was written around uh, 500 B.C. It was about 100 years before this, the clock started to tick. So 100 years before the clock started to tick, God through Gabriel tells Daniel... I've got 70 periods of seven, which is 490 years. And by the way, we know that through a number of different um, points of direction, but the reality is it's 700 or 490 years. And in that time frame, I'm going to deal with my people, I'm going to deal with Jerusalem, and I'm going to deal with the world. 
Again, period number one starts off in verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth to the, of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks. And again, he breaks it down into uh, actually four different time periods are represented here. Now again, we're in, a, we're in the commercial jet. We're looking down over all of history. From there, God is going to give us right to the end. But again, he says, first of all, there's seven weeks. That's, what, seven times seven years is what? Forty-nine years. What is he referring to? From the time uh, of the going forth of the command to restore uh, Jerusalem and build Jerusalem. That's, uh, we find that command in Nehemiah uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. It began in the year 444 B.C. Now this was written, Daniel wrote it in 539. See, 443rd. 539, that's about 100 years. So the command went out around four, I mean, at 444 B.C. And then from there, it's going to be 49 years. Well, we know that Nehemiah, because again, it was a command by the king of Persia to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls. We know that the walls only took 52 what? 52 what? Days. But it took 49 years to complete the city. Just because the walls were done doesn't mean the city wasn't complete. That's period one. Number, period number two is the second part of verse 25. In 62 weeks, and then verse 26 says, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. He's going to die. That's what it means to be cut off. But it's not because of his sin, and it's not because of uh, uh, dying for his purposes. It's, it's dying for us, not for himself. It wasn't because he was a sinner. And so we find that there's this time frame from 444 B.C. That's when the clock started. There's going to be a 7 times 7, that's 49 years. And 62 times 7, that's what, 483 or something like that? No, 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 400 and, what is that? I, what's that? Well, that's the atom together. I should have wrote it down. No, no, four. 434, yeah, I'm like, it's not, you put those two together, it's 483, okay, <laughs> I always just remember the 483, well, if you, so if you add the 62 plus the 7, that's 69 times 7 is 483 years, if you, if you use a, a Jewish calendar, 360 uh, days in a year, that it comes out to 173,880 days. It was on that very day when Jesus walked into Jerusalem at the triumphant entry. Many say this is the greatest of all the prophecies fulfilled because 173,880 days from the time when Cyrus said, go back and build the wall. Exactly to the day is when Jesus walked into Jerusalem. And again, so five centuries before the event... God drew an axe on an exact day when Christ would appear as the long-awaited son of David. Now, if, if you've got your outline, I don't even know if I have an outline. Yeah. Uh, I gave you that um, little thing in your, in your bulletin there. Uh, last week, I, don't re I didn't really refer to it much, but if you look at it, again, Artaxerxes' decree, okay, seven weeks, 49, temple restored, 62, total triumphant entry. And then you see that little bit, and Christ will be cut off few days later, he's cut off. He arrives in Jerusalem on a Monday, 
and he, and he dies on a Friday, right? Um, now, the thing that you don't have here is that final week. And there's two final periods. Period number three is the church age. That's not even found in Daniel chapter 9. Because as uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and Romans uh, chapter 11 say, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. And again, what is a mystery? A mystery is something that is, is true, and God knows, obviously, because he's, he's all-knowing, but that He has not revealed to humanity. So, Daniel had the big picture of history. He had, 60, he had uh, uh, 69 weeks times seven. He had the 483 years, but he didn't have that last week. That's why it's called the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is the tribulation period. See, I know you keep saying, and probably to yourself, you keep saying you're going to be in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 6 and you don't get there. Well, we've looked at Israel and the covenants to establish that Israel is part of the tribulation. We looked at Daniel's uh, 70 weeks last week and this week because we want to establish that God, who is all-knowing, has already given us the big picture. But again, um, you know, we've we got to see how the tribulation plays into the big picture. So that's period number three, the church age. And again, not referred to in Daniel. But then in chapter, uh, since you're in uh, chapter 9 there, look at verse 26. Now notice the transition. Verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, now catch this. And the people of the prince who is to come. Wait, wait, wait a second. He's cut off. Who's the people of the prince? That's the Antichrist. In between for himself in the words, and the people, at least in my translation, is 2,000 years. And it's not till the second part, and, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, the preview of that was 70 AD when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. But ultimately, that's going to be even the tribulation. And then the rest of that point is, is going all the way down to verse uh, 27, the last part. It says, even unto the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So all that is the tribulation. talks about confirming a covenant one week, but then in the middle of the week, that's seven, seven years. Half of that is three and a half years. That's exactly what you see in the book of Revelation. So Daniel gave us the big picture. Revelation gives us the particulars. So that's the big flyover. And again, that chart, I think, is very helpful. Notice the rest of that. At the beginning of the last week of Daniel, the 70th week, is where Antichrist's uh, covenant with Israel, he confirms, quote-unquote, of covenant. He breaks the covenant in the, half, in the halfway point of the seven years, which is a three-and-a-half-year point. And then Christ comes at the very end. And then everything is set up as far as towards the millennial temple, or kingdom and the temple. Okay, so that's the big uh, flyover, as it were. Now, now we want to get out of the commercial jet, and we want to get into a Learjet, and go a little bit closer to the picture. Okay, again, Learjets go between five and twenty thousand feet. We're going to get a little bit closer, and for this, you want to go to Mark chapter thirteen. We're going to, and we're going to be looking at just a piece of Daniel 70 weeks. Okay, We're going to be looking at the piece of when Messiah is cut off. Okay, 60, uh, 69 weeks are done. Messiah is cut off. Remember that's what Daniel 9 said? Messiah is cut off. Now we're going to be looking at 
Uh, I want to give you the bigger, or the smaller, or however you want to say, the, the more uh, magnified picture of that time frame, of Messiah being cut off to the time of the tribulation. And, and I'm just going to have to give you a big pieces. This is what we call Passion Week. This is when, again, Christ comes in uh, to Jerusalem for the final time. It's his triumphant entry. It, it happens, I believe, on March 30th, 33 A.D., it's, it's to the day of 173,880 days. To that very day, he walks in. That's why he's able to tell them you should have known this day. I mean, if you had known Scripture, you would have known what was going to happen on this day. But again, they were supposedly students of Scripture but didn't know the time or the hour. He actually enters Jerusalem. Now, tradition says on Sunday. Actually, it's on Monday. He enters Jerusalem on Monday because on that particular year, um, the, the, the choosing of the Lamb and a number of other things happened on the 10th of Nisan. N-I-S-A-N. Nisan. I know you say Nisan, but no, that's a car and there's not two S's, there's one. Okay, I got it. But anyways, the point is he arrives on Monday. That's the, the 10th of Nisan. Okay, that's when that fell. Uh, that's when, by the way, that is when the Passover lambs, in the Old Testament says on the 10th of that month is when you choose the Passover lamb. It won't be till the 14th that you sacrifice it. Now think about this, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is going to enter and present himself as a Passover lamb on that day. Okay, that's on Monday. So he walks in. He's not going to, and then he will be... Uh, in and amidst, in fact, you know, one of the things you had to do with the Passover lamb was you had to inspect it and make sure it was perfect. And it was those four days, actually, he would be going back to the temple, presenting himself to the people. And they rejected their Passover lamb. They rejected the, the lamb of God. So that's Monday. On Tuesday, he's going to come back. And as he's walking to the temple, he curses the fig tree. That plays in huge because that's a symbol of Israel. Uh, leaves no fruit. Externals, but no internals. He's setting it up so he's, he's saying, listen, Israel, you have become desolate. You have externals. By the way, that's, a, th that's something for us to consider. Do you have just externals? Do you look good in the outward, but you're as uh, dead man bones on the inward? But for, for, the, for the, uh, uh, the Jews, he, he's, he's walking towards the temple and he curses the fig tree. Later on, he finds out that all, everything's gone because he, the tree's been cursed. And it was the only miracle that he did that was in reverse. It didn't heal, it actually destroyed. And then he went to the temple on that Tuesday. So Monday he walks in, Tuesday he's, he's going towards the temple. And he goes into the temple and attacks and cleanses the temple from all the buyers and sellers. He throws them out. And he basically is preparing the temple for his entrance on the next day. This is the second time he's done that. In the first part of his ministry, he went, out, went into the temple and threw out the money changers. And at the very end, the last, this is the Tuesday, it'll be Thursday that he dies. This is important, uh, by the way, because... When you read the Scripture, many times you're in you know, the end of one of the Gospels and not realizing this is all happening in the last week of his life on this earth as far as before his death. 
So Tuesday, he throws out the money changers. On Wednesday, he went back to the temple and used that full day to teach the truth. This is the first time that truth had been <laughs> literally spoken all day in the temple because they were so religious, externals but no internals. So he goes back on Wednesday, he teaches a full day. On Thursday, he will celebrate the Passover with his disciples. He will establish the ordinance of a, of a new ordinance of the communion. And it will be that night that he's betrayed. Friday, he is, and through that night, he has uh, the trials. And then by Friday, he is crucified. Saturday, and dies, crucified. Uh, and Saturday, he is in the grave. And then Sunday, he rises from the dead. So he enters on Monday, which stops the clock. 490 years, or 483 years, stops the clock. And then these things are happening. and he's, So let's, let's go back. Monday he goes in. Tuesday he cleans out the temple. Wednesday he teaches. Thursday he's with his disciples. By the way, when he leaves Wednesday, and that's what we're looking at today, when he, after he leaves Wednesday, he never comes back as far as to teach. And now let's go back to Wednesday, though. That's where we want to kind of, um, that's where we want to stay for a few moments. Wednesday, again, he's in the temple, he's teaching. Go to Matthew, actually, I should have told you Matthew 21, verse 23. Matthew 21. I, you may know this, but as I was studying, I was like, oh, that, now that makes sense. By the way, I'll tell you what really makes sense is Judas betraying him. Because after you go through the sequence, you're saying, oh, Judas was looking for the king, and as soon as he knew he wasn't, or at least from his perspective, that's why he said, I'm ditching you. But this is what he goes. He goes, and, and you might want to keep your hand in Mark 13 and Matthew 21, because we're going to kind of go back and forth. But uh, Matthew 21, verse 23, it says, Now when he came into the temple, okay, this is on Wednesday, into the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching. Again, they were always confrontational with him. And said, By what authority are you doing these things? And, and who gave you this authority? Very, very pointed. Who gave you this authority? All right, let me, let me read for you um, Matthew 21. Let's go over. Uh, let's just next. And Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing. You're asking me who gave me this authority. Let me ask you a question. Which if, and if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. You know, John the Baptist. Where, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reason among themselves, well, if we say from heaven, he will then tell us, why did you not believe, why didn't you believe him if you said it's from heaven? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said to him, we do not know. Boy, what a good, they were good politicians. <laughs> never, never, you never didn't, you know, well, we don't know. Well, they knew, they just weren't. And then he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now you've got to believe that, that just like smacked them across the face. I'm not going to answer you. But from there, he starts teaching. And he does all day on Wednesday, he's teaching. He talks about the parable of the two sons. And, and you can go right down through. Well, again, the two sons. And, and um, basically the end of the story is this. That though he had two sons, it was the tax, the one son represented the tax gatherers, collectors, and the sinners, and they were the ones accepted. And what he was saying by that particular parable was this Israel, you're rejected, 
but sinners can have righteousness. See, they thought they were the ones that could have righteousness. So that parable of the two sons was saying, Israel, you're set aside. You're condemned. And then the parable of the landowner, landowner uh, verse 42 says this, the stone which the builders rejected has been, become the chief cornerstone. Well, who's the one that rejected the chief cornerstone? Israel. See, he is telling parables that are saying, Israel, you know, you're like the fig tree. Leaves but no fruit. Externals, no internals. You're the one that has been rejected. You're the one that is going to reject, ultimately, uh, the Lamb of God that's presenting Himself. And then he t uh, tells about the parable of the marriage feast in, in Matthew 22. He has conflicts in that same passage of Matthew 22 with the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. I mean, this day he has continual conflict because what he's done is thrown the gauntlet down and said, you have been rejected, Israel. You are apostate. You are not the true Israel. Okay. Now, do you see the fervor that's happening? Do you see how it can go from... And on Monday, you know, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord till by Friday they want to kill him. Actually, they want to kill me even before that. Then he's asked, what is the greatest of all commands? And at the end of that particular passage, he tells about David as the son, and yet David is the father. In other words, he's under. Uh, if you go, actually, let's just read that real quickly. Uh, 22 verse 44, because this appears in all the passages. Now, what do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? And he said to him, the son of David. Okay, so David's the father. And he said to them, well, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? <laughs> how do you do that? Because Christ is eternal, and yet he's from the seed of David. Okay, and so he's setting himself up as what? Deity. He's setting himself as deity. Now, after all that teaching, he then, this is how he's finalizing his teaching on that day. You know, he's not trying to make them feel good. In Matthew chapter 23, look at this. But woe to you, verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now again, this has all happened. See, this is the final um, confrontation with them. He's, he's in conflict. He is condemning them. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men for, the, for, uh, for you neither go in yourself nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. In other words, you're even stopping people. You don't want to go into the, the kingdom, but you're even stopping others from going in because of your uh, ungodly teaching. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at verse 19. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. 17. Foolish and blind. 19. Foolish and blind. 23. Woe to you, scribes. You know, Jesus is not nice. No, this is not the Jesus I want. I want a nice Jesus, the world says. And then he says in verse 25, 27, 29, 33, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? And then he ends in verse 36, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You just, you're going to, you're going to be destroyed. It's not how to make friends and influence people in that sense. Look at verse 38. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. From whom? God. 
See your house, verse 38 is very important. See your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, now this is very important, I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're going to say the same thing you did on, on Monday, except this time your heart's going to be changed. Okay? You're going to want me, but you're going to want the real me, not the, me, the one that you think is me. Now, in the sequence of things, go over to Mark chapter 13. Because an interesting thing happens. As he's walking out of the temple, he's just, he has just condemned them, the woes, the blind guides, the blind guides. He's just... But now he, it says in uh, verse 38, so Mark, excuse me, it's actually Mark 12, not 13, 12. Verse 38, Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greeting in the marketplace. Why? Why do you, look at verse 40, Who devour widows' houses. They take from widows. I mean, of all people, widows? Old Testament was very clear you take care of the widows. And then in verse 41, now Jesus sat opposite the treasury. If I was going to have a picture. I didn't ever get it. but I mean, I have it, but I never put it up on the PowerPoint. But if you look at the temple and the east gate, you walk in, and the treasuries, they think were on both sides. But the point is this. He's sitting in, the, I believe, the court of the women. Because, again, this is a woman that's going to be participating. And uh, the treasuries were right there. So he's, he's watching... He's, he's leaving the temple for the last time. His teaching with the ungodly is done. He still has a lot of teaching to the, the disciples, but the ungodly, the curtain is coming down as far as teaching. So now he's just with his disciples. He's already, <laughs> he, he has already excoriated the, the religious people. And he said he sat opposite the treasure and saw, treasury and, and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow. Now again, he just said in verse 40, they devour widows' houses. One poor widow. The word poor means poor, but she still had a little bit of substance. I mean, she didn't drive the Cadillac, she didn't even drive the Ford, but she just had a bicycle. Okay? And one poor widow came and threw in two mites. Real little. In fact, when we were in Israel, I bought one one time. Supposedly. <laughs> real. But the point is, is I put enough money down, it should be real. But the point is, is this. Just two. It was the smallest of the coins. But two mites, which make a quadrant. And he called his disciples to himself and said to them, and, and I want you to see this, he is not commending her. He is condemning uh, uh, false religion at this point. I, I've even preached on this. Oh, we need to sacrifice. That is not what's going on here. What's going on is, can you believe it? This false system is so wicked, it would take the last two cents of a widow. Surely I say to you that this poor woman has put in more than all those who have uh, given to the treasury. For they put in all out of their own abundance, but she out of her poverty, it's a different word, it means now she is completely broke, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. He's pointing to the corruption of the religious system that was so wicked, it used and abused those who were the weakest and most needy, even the widow. 
See, he's putting the final death now on this false religion. Can you look? look come on, guys. I want you to see this. I want you to see. Do you see all the rich people right there? They're gathering all their wealth. Oh, they're dropping it in. They used to drop it like this. Ding! Everybody could see. But can you imagine? Can you imagine, guys? Can you imagine, disciples? This system is so corrupt, they would be willing to take the last two cents from a widow. And, and you know what she's going to go in now? She's going to go home and die. This is man's religion. This is works-based religion. This religion kills it. Physically kills it. Spiritually kills. And you, you see the same thing today, don't you? Don't you see? I mean, go to Trinity Broadcasting Network. You know, the ones with the blue hair and the, and the red hair and the pink hair and they got the big gold and they drive and they have these three or four different complexes that are called homes and they're taken and taken and they're promising and promising and it's false because it's all about money, power. And then you know what he does now? He leaves the temple and his disciples follow him. They went out of the eastern gate down that little bank across the Kidron, that little stream that runs up the slope of the Mount of Olives. And him and his disciples sit on the Mount of Olives in the dusk of the sun going down on Wednesday night. Wednesday night now. He's just done a whole time of teaching. And that's what it says in chapter 13, verse 1. Then as he went out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him. And now, again, he went out of the temple. And by verse 22... Well, look what he says. Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. See, you know where he's at because the eastern gate is here. You can see the temple, the Mount of Olives is here. That's where they're, that's where they're sitting. He's gone up on the mount. And it's only called the Mount of Olives because it was just where an orchard of olive trees were. Actually, even to this day. Unless they've been destroyed in one of the latest wars. But when I went back in 2000, I think it was 2000, when I went back then... They, they showed us the, you know, the, the Garden of Gethsemane and, and uh, you know, the olives and trees and all that. And they said, oh yeah, that one's probably about 2,000 years old. Which would be dating back to what? Time of Christ. Mount of Olives. So again, he's sitting up there and the sun is going down and the reflection of the sun off of that. They say the eastern uh, side was like, had either plated or... Uh, Tremendous amount of gold. In the morning, it would blind you. At night, it just was that, you know, wow. Like, and that's why they, they uh, mentioned, you know, they just mentioned, look, a teacher, see what manner of stones, what stones? Stones of the temple and what buildings are here. The temple wasn't just one. It had colonnades and porticos. It had the actual temple, but it was all this magnificent structure. They say it was one of the, the most uh, magnificent of that time period. I mean, they're just odd. And isn't, isn't man always odd with religion? It's almost like us saying, what a great church building we have. Well, yeah, I'm thankful for the... Are you thankful for the new, new building and the kitchen? Yeah, but you know what? It's about what God's doing in your heart. Right? Not, not what He's necessary. I mean, the building is nothing more than what? What can you tell me? What is this building? Nothing more than a tool. Okay. You have to be good stewards of it, but it's just a tool. But see, these guys are just odd. You know, the sun and reflection and wow. Now again, it was, I mean, the temple itself was, you know, there was four temples. Is there four? Let me see. Uh, there's the Davidic temple. That's destroyed with Nebuchadnezzar. When 
Jerubbabel comes back, and Haggai and all the prophets and Ezra, they, they start another temple called Zerubbabel's temple. And that kind of floundered and never had the glory of David's temple, Solomon's temple. I should say Solomon. David started Solomon. Solomon's temple, but then there's Zerubbabel, and it just had kind of floundered for year after year after year. Well, Herod, uh, around uh, 20 years before uh, B.C., started working on this uh, temple. And basically, he wanted to make a name for himself. So, I mean, it was just fabulous. I mean, it had marble and gold. He himself had offered a, uh, a gold vine, literally a vine made out of gold that was on the wall uh, on the outside, I'm sure guarded. But the point is, is this. It was, um, one guy said, in the eastern wall covered in gold, the temple's main structure gleamed in the evening light as it was, as it were, a massive jewel. The impressive temple's complex contained numerous, again, porticos, colonnades, patios, courtyards. It enabled tens of thousands of people to be there. This thing was huge. And it would be under construction and would continue to be under construction until about, uh, I think it was 62 or 63 A.D. So for almost 85 years, this thing is under construction. It was in 70 A.D. that it was completely destroyed. But they're just like, wow. You know, the disciples are, wow. <coughs> What's interesting is, you know, where Solomon's temple was destroyed, Zerubbabel, which became Herod's temple, was destroyed, 70 A.D., there's actually two more temples to come. One is the, the tribulation temple. The tribulation, during that time, there's going to be offerings. That's where uh, Antichrist takes over. And then finally, the millennial temple. Okay. Um, but it says this, that in the eternal state after the new heaven and the earth, there is no, new, no temple because the Lord and his Christ is the temple in the eternal state. Okay, that's one of the biggest reasons to say, well, why is there a millennial temple? Because that is primarily for the Jews to see who Christ is and remembering who he really is. Okay, that's why that's there for a thousand years. Okay, but look at what he says. Verse 2, and Jesus answered and said, yeah, this is a great building. Uh, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. I'm sure their jaw dropped. It's kind of like Americans looking at the United States and someone coming along and saying, in 10 years from now, we're going to be like Zimbabwe. We're going to, that's going to be the poverty here. You're going to, you'd look at me like you are out of your mind. I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying, do you see how you would say, what? How do we go from prosperity to poverty that quick? Well, that's what he's saying here. It happened within... Within 40 years, that's when the, the gauntlet came down. And that's exactly what happened. This apostate religion <clears throat> kept going on. And because of uh, anarchy and uprisings and, and uh, Roman government looking at Jerusalem and the temple, the center of worship, with a suspicious eye, finally looked at it with like they were insurrectionists. They finally came in and destroyed And And literally what he said came true. Not one stone shall be left upon another. And you know the story. What happened is when they were burning Jerusalem and then burning the temple, the heat was so intense that the gold literally dripped down in between the stones of the temple. And for the soldiers to get the stones, they had to remove each piece 
they were literally treasure hunters. And they took the stones and threw them in the Kidron so that you could find, you'd go through the rubble. And all that was actually left are the big foundation stones that are not actually part of the temple. But every stone of the temple, and that's, now, what do you say, what what do you think, I mean, as you're listening to that, what do you say? Jesus knew exactly what was going on, i.e., Jesus is God, right? And so not one stone was laid, was left on the other. One one archaeologist, Werner Keller, said this, speaking of Jerusalem, it was, extin- it was extinguished in an inferno which is almost unparalleled in history. That's how bad it was. It got so bad in Jerusalem that at the very end, mothers were literally eating their children. Why? Famine. I mean, they were under siege. So the first thing, and I never even told you the word, the first thing that Jesus says is there's going to be destruction and it's going to happen in that temple. And Jerusalem. The second thing, and this is where we're going to have to end today, is deception. Now again, we're in a, a Learjet, and we're, we're saying, okay, Jesus is actually showing us what's going to happen from that point, him being cut off to the start of, actually to the end. But it's a closer view. He's saying there's going to be destruction and destruction all over, but there's also going to be a lot of deception. We're going to have to pick up on this next week. Look at verse 4. It says, tell us, when will these things be? What things? All this stuff that's happening. And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So that's Mark 13, 4. And Jesus answered them and began to say, take heed that no one deceive you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. Many false Christs, many false messiahs, and will deceive many. Look at, go over to verse 21. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here, here, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to deceive. To deceive, if possible, by the way, it's not possible, that's the whole point of him saying, if possible, even the elect. I mean, they are so deceptive that even a true believer, one who, who is illumined by the Holy Spirit, if possible, even that person could be deceived. Not possible because he has the Spirit of God, but that's how deceptive they are. But, but take heed. See, I have told you all these things beforehand. See, he's saying, listen, you're in the Learjet. You're close enough to see the big picture. I've already told you this is coming. One of the wacky, uh, I shouldn't say wacky, that's disrespectful, but one of the crazy things of... Um, Millennial views is the post-millennial view. Post-millennialism says this, the earth keeps getting better and better and better. In reality, you know what happens? The earth gets worse and worse and worse. Worser. <laughs> no, no. Deceivers. And, and we've seen a lot of deceivers. The Jim Jones and the Benny Hens and Joel Olsteins. And those who think that the Catholics and evangelicals can get together. We're going to look at a few of them next week. We don't have time this week. But I want to end with one final, I think, great deception, and that's Islam. Islam. I only have 10 minutes. I don't know how much I can do with this. Islam means submission. Submission to Allah. Again, the greatest of their prophets is Muhammad. It's the last prophet. Uh, That was their last prophet. 
They believed Jesus was a good prophet, but Muhammad was their last prophet. He gave the final word. What's interesting is this, and, and this plays off a of deception. Most people think of Islam as an utterly distinct religion from Christianity, with like no connection to Christianity whatsoever. Now again, there are some that do have no connection. Hinduism has no connection to Christianity. Buddhism, Taoism. But see, there's a lot of false religions that have a lot of connection. Mormonism, Jehovah Witness. But again, Muslim, Islam, does have a connection with Christianity. In fact, they have a very, very close connection with Christianity. That's what Satan wants to do. To get a counterfeit, you have to get very close to the real thing. And I believe the, the one billion plus Muslims are getting very, they think very close to the real thing. Okay? And therefore, it's hard. So I want to go through this. This is not original with me. I've not done that much study on Islam. Actually, this comes from a message I heard, actually with MacArthur. And I was like, wow, I never thought that. So like, let's say in 10 minutes, let me see what I can get through. See, there are actually confessed evangelical people who think that Muslims not only believe in God because they're a monotheist, in other words, believe in one God, but that Muslims are okay because they actually believe in Jesus. One of the heretics in the Christian realm, and I say heretics because I believe it's Brian McLaren. He's part of the emerging movement, emerging church movement. He wrote in his book, The Secret Message of Jesus, quote, all Muslims regard Jesus as a great prophet. A shared reevaluation of Jesus' mes message could provide a common ground for urgently needed religious dialogue. This reappraisal of Jesus may be our only way of saving a number of religions, including Christianity. What is Brian saying? End quote. We need to move towards them. Tony Campello said a similar thing, but we don't have time. See, Jesus is very prevalent in Muslim writings. He plays a crucial part in their eschatology. Now, when I keep saying in Jesus, or Jesus, I am talking about the Islamic Jesus, not the true Jesus, the Islamic Jesus, which is false. Did I just hear that? Thank you, Mary. False. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's what I mean by Islamic Jesus, false. Again, Muslims in their own writings describe the Muslim Jesus like this. Now, this is how they describe him. This is out of their own writings, the Quran and the Sunnah. All right? Out of their writings. They have two sets of writings, just like Roman Catholicism has. You know, this is the writings and this is the traditions equal. By the way, the Sunnah sometimes is referred to the Hadith. It's their holy tradition. All right, quote. In their system, they have a Jesus. He was a man. He was not God. Now, I'm saying this because if you have a Muslim... Thank you. If you have a Muslim friend, or if you hear, well, G uh, Muslims believe in Jesus, I want you to know which Jesus they're talking about. Because they're not talking about your Jesus. They are talking about their Jesus in their writings. He was a man. He was, God. he was not God. He did not die. He went to heaven like Elijah. He did not die, therefore he did not rise. He did not rise, therefore he did not provide an atonement for everyone. Or, or for anyone. Let's say for anyone. Because no one can provide an atonement for anyone else. 
He is a man. He is a prophet. He is a prophet. He is nothing more. He went to heaven like Elijah, and he's in heaven right now, standing alongside Allah, waiting for Allah to send him back. That's where their Jesus is. In their system, this man, this prophet Jesus, who is now in heaven, never having died, plays a key role in the end of time. Because he will return from heaven without dying, and he will come back when Allah sends him back. And the question is, what's the question? Why would Allah send him back? Now again, this is the false Christ. This is their false interpretation of Jesus. I mean, they have a lot of prophets to choose from in Islam. Why would they send Jesus back? Answer, again, this is from their own writings, the Quran and the Sunnah. So that when he shows up, he can correct all the Christians who have misunderstood who he is. You see deception there? You see deception? The great event of the coming of Christ by them or the coming of Jesus, is so that this prophet, this man who comes back can straighten out all the misdirected, misguided, mistaken Christians who think he is God, who died and rose again and provided atonement. He comes back to straighten it all out. And by the way, after he gets back, he'll get married, have children, and die and be buried next to Muhammad. That's their Jesus. Now, in Islamic eschatology, there are three great persons that show up in history at the very end of the age. There's a lot of lesser signs, but there's three great signs. And, let me, and I gave them to you on your little outline there at the very bottom. The first person is the Mahdi, M-A-D-H-I, the Mahdi. This is the first man that will come in the end of history. Some call him the 12th Imam. Remember Ahmadinejad, every time um, he gave a speech back when he was uh, running Iran, he would say, glory to the 12th Imam, to the Mahdi. He's there. The Mahdi is the great conqueror in Islam. That's their savior. And what he's, what he's coming to do is this. He comes at the end of the age to slaughter all who will not worship Allah and convert to Islam. They are identified in their writings as pigs and dogs. That's the infidels. He will be the one to establish world-dominating kingdom of Islam. The Mahdi, or the twelfth Imam, means the guided one is the long-awaited savior. He is the establisher of the final caliphate, which is the Islamic government. The world must follow him as he takes over, or he will destroy all the enemies of Islam. He will come and he will carry on holy war. And either you convert or you're killed by the Mahdi. He will have an army and his army will have actually be carrying black flags. And there'll be one word. The word will be punishment. That's what they're going to, that's going to be the flag that they carry. It's interesting, Iran carries black flags. Why? Because they're waiting for the Mahdi. They want to be on his team. Okay? So he's going to slaughter all the Jews and he's going to establish his rule in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. According to the Holy Writings, the Mahdi will bring in the rain and the crops and the wealth and the happiness so that all will love him and no one will speak of anyone but just him alone. 
The writings say that the Mahdi will come and make at first a peace agreement with the Jews and the West, and it will last for seven years. That's what their writing says. Seven years. And the reign of Mahdi will last again for seven years in which he will establish Islam on the earth. Their holy writings say this, that the Mahdi will come riding on a white horse, and it even says it's according to the book of Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Well, it makes sense. Islam came 600 years after the Bible, well, 500 years after the Bible was written. Satan has just aligned everything up. This is, okay. Well, we know Revelation chapter 6 is actually, verse 1 is the Antichrist. Now, when the Mahdi arrives, he will discover hidden scriptures somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. Now, these hidden scriptures will contain the Gospels and the hidden Torah. Now, Torah is for the Jews. And they will be the true scriptures which will be used by the Mahdi to show the Jews and the Christians they were wrong. You see what happens? They find the, the best of the scriptures and say, See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had it all wrong. Your Torah had it all wrong. These are false scriptures. So let me summarize. The Mahdi will be a messianic figure, the descendant of Muhammad. He will be unparalleled and unequaled leader, come out of a crisis of turmoil, take over the world, establish a new world order, destroy all who resist him. He will invade many nations and will make a seven-year peace treaty with the Jews. He will conquer Israel and massacre the Jews, establish Islamic world headquarters at Jerusalem, rule for seven years, establish Islam as the only religion, and come on a white horse with supernatural power. He will be loved by all people. Who does that sound like to you? That is a precise description of the biblical Antichrist. Absolutely precise. Right to the T. So the Bible's Antichrist in the, is their Mahdi. He's the one right on the right horse of Revelation chapter 6. The Bible's Antichrist is Islam's Savior. That's the first person. I know I'm running out of time. I just got to finish this. Because otherwise you're going to say, well, who are the other two people? The second person is Jesus. There's a second sign. Now again, this is the Islamic Jesus. The Mahdi is not Jesus. The Mahdi is greater than Jesus. And that's very, very important in this whole thing because if he's equal with Jesus, then Jesus, what he said was right. No, no. Jesus is under the Mahdi. See, that makes the Christians wrong. Muslims believe that Jesus will come again. They believe in the return of Christ. Not, just, not the true Christ. The tr again, the Jesus is Islam. Not God, not the one who died, not the one who gave himself as an atonement for those who would believe. No, not that one. Not the one that rose from the dead. Not the one that sacrificed himself. But again, this Jesus comes back and his one purpose is to assist and aid the Mahdi. Again, the Mahdi is the biblical antichrist in this scenario. Jesus, when he comes back, will pray to the Mahdi, who is greater than he. He will acknowledge the Mahdi as his Lord. Make pilgrimage to Mecca and worship Allah there. And thus he will lead all Christians who will follow 
him to reject their notion of Jesus of the Bible and accept the real Jesus of Islam who is nothing but a prophet. See, do you see what the point is? Come in here to deceive. This is what their writing says. Christians everywhere will affirm that he isn't God, he isn't the Son of God. He himself will come back and point out how wrong we've all been and correct the misinterpretation. It says in their literature that this Jesus, this Islamic Jesus, will, quote, shatter crosses. The symbol of Christianity, right? Churches, Christians, shatter crosses. In other words, he will destroy the church of Christ. Again, the destruction of the living church. He will abolish the tax on non-Muslims. Why? Because there won't be any non-Muslims living. Right now, a non-Muslim has to pay a tax. He's going to destroy that. Why? Because there's not going to be any non-Muslims. He's going to bring the rest of the world to the Mahdi and worship of Allah. And this Jesus will kill the Islamic Antichrist and then he will die. Again, be buried next to Muhammad after he has destroyed Christianity by revealing who he really is. <laughs> now, who is this guy? Well, you see him in Revelation 13, 16, 19, and 20. This is the beast coming out of the earth. This is not the Antichrist. This is the false prophet. What are you seeing happening here? Satan has his unholy trinity. Allah, Mahdi, and the Islamic Jesus. Because what does Satan do? Counterfeit. Gets very close. This is not like Buddhism. Buddhism, there is no Jesus. Hinduism, no Jesus. This is right up close. And you might be talking to a friend that's a Muslim. Oh no, we believe in Jesus. Can I see those pictures real quick? I just, uh, this, is, this is a Muslim. Jesus is not son of God. He is a prophet of Islam. What's the next one? No Muslim is a Muslim if he does not believe in Jesus. What else? I like, like all Muslims, I love Jesus. Peace be upon him. Well, yeah, because that's not the Jesus of the Bible. They have a third major person, and this guy's name is Dajjal. The Muslim Antichrist. Now, this is the Muslim Antichrist. I'm not talking biblical Antichrist. This is Muslim Antichrist. Will show up. The Muslim call him Dajjal. He is the great deceiver. He comes to earth on a mule. He is blind in one eye. He is an infidel. He is a false miracle worker. The Islamic Antichrist. But you know who he claims to be? He claims to be Jesus, the Son of God. He claims to be deity. He will, ex he will attempt to stop the Mahdi and the true Jesus, the Islamic Jesus, but the true Jesus will slaughter him. Okay. He's trying to destroy Islam, but Islam destroys him. Okay? He claims to be deity. He will attempt to stop the Mahdi. I think I've already read this. Our Jesus is their Antichrist, and our Antichrist is their Redeemer. I just, wow, like really? How did I not ever see this before? He had satanic counterfeit. Their quote, and this is one of their quotes, and now I'm almost done. The army of Satan will be led by a person the army of Satan will be led by a person who will claim to be Jesus Christ. The Muslim Jesus will fight the false Jesus and kill him and establish Islam forever. That's what their writings say. 
The truth is, the true Jesus will destroy the Antichrist and false prophet and establish his kingdom forever. And someday you may have to die for that truth. So again, Satan's complete counterfeit. Last three slides and then we're done. This is a picture on Iran. There's a big old mural in uh, Tehran. And this is the Mahdi. And look at who this is. Could you have another picture? That's Jesus. Okay? They're proclaiming Jesus. Jesus is coming back. He's part of the Mullahs. He's part of the big group of uh, Islam. He's coming back to convince you you don't believe right. Final picture. Jesus is Muslim. Yes, we use the present tense. Seek the truth and go to that. No, don't go to that website. But the point. And so when we read in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, false Christ and false prophets. Now those are plural. I've just given you one piece. By the way, I am not yet ready to say this is how it's all going to play out. I just know that this is what Islam says will play out. But I do believe this, that the Antichrist of uh, Revelation is not Jewish. He is a Gentile. There's so many ways to prove that he is not Jewish. But it says this, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Not possible, but if possible. That's how deceptive it is. But take heed. See, I have told you all these things. Are you a believer in the religious Jesus or are you a believer in the Jesus, the Son of God, who came to this earth and gave himself as a substitute for your sin as the God-man who died, was buried, and rose from the dead the third day. And because of that, you have absolute assurance. I have my faith in him and he is the only way. He's the only true Son of God. Is that where your faith lies? Or is it just religion? Because you know what? In that last day, you know what happens? A lot of people that are just religious will just turn to the next best thing. And that's how they're deceived. But the true Christian says, no, he is the only Son of God that died for my sins and he's coming back, right? He's coming back. He's the only true one. Is that where you're at? I trust that is. If not, receive him even today. Put your faith and trust in the true Jesus Christ. Let's stand as we close. We're going to...